Okay, um, today's passage is Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, and endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Once upon a time, Chicken Little was walking down the road, thinking his own thoughts about everything and nothing, when thwack, an acorn fell on his head. Ouch, said Chicken Little, rubbing his head. I think the sky is falling. I must run and tell the king. So Chicken Little ran down the road to tell the king, and on his way, he met Henny Penny. Where are you going in such a hurry? Henny Penny asked Chicken Little. The sky is falling. I'm going to tell the king, said Chicken Little. I will come with you, said Henny Penny. So Chicken Little and Henny Penny hurried along, and other friends joined them as they went. Where are you going in such a hurry, Ducky Lucky asked them. Well, the sky is falling, and we're going to tell the king, said Chicken Little. I will come with you, said Ducky Lucky. So this group of friends, it grew and grew, and the panicked, anxious group hurried their way to the king. But as they went, they ran into Foxy Loxy. Why, good day, my friends, said Foxy Loxy. And where might you be going this fine morning? The sky is falling, said Chicken Little. We're going to tell the king. Really? How interesting. Have you ever been to the king's palace before? Asked Foxy Loxy. No, said Chicken Little. And the others all shook their heads. Then how do you know you will find the way? Asked Foxy Loxy. Um, I never thought of that, said Chicken Little. Why don't you let me help you? Said Foxy Loxy. I know the way to the king's palace very well. Just follow me and you will be there in no time. So Chicken Little and all his friends followed along. And soon they came to a path that led to the woods. And they followed Foxy Loxy down the path into the woods and straight to Foxy Loxy's den. And Foxy Loxy's wife and babies were waiting there, all ready to gobble up Chicken Little, Henny Penny, Ducky Lucky, and all their friends. The end. <laughs> 
Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Communities downtown campus. I really should say, uh, if you're new with us this morning, we do not open every sermon uh, with a children's story, although maybe we should. Uh, but this week, that story, Chicken Little, seemed like a particularly fitting introduction to what we'll be studying today and for the next couple months. You see, the story of Chicken Little, it's a cautionary tale for children. It was written to demonstrate that frenzied panic and catastrophizing conclusions are unhelpful and dangerous, often yielding disastrous results. It's a story designed to display the importance of proper perspective. It emphasizes the value of accurately assessing what's happening before declaring a state of emergency. It's a story that teaches kids a valuable lesson that is important to their maturing. And I'd like to suggest it's a story that has something to teach us grown-ups as well. Because it's not just fictional birds who feel falling acorns and run around saying the sky is falling, is it? Everywhere I turn, I hear grown adults assert that the world is on the verge of terrible calamity. I turn on the television, I open my Facebook, I hear a political ad on the radio, I read the financial news, I study opinion polls, and commentator after commentator, and analyst after analyst, and friend after friend, each in their own way, are all giving a similar message. They're all saying in their own words, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And I want to be clear, we do live in a particular moment in human history where all kinds of transitions are happening. Okay, there are economic transitions, philosophical transitions, political transitions, kind of transitions in the workplace, social transitions. They're happening all around us. Things aren't what they once were. New technologies and new ways of relating to one another and new ways of thinking, they're reshaping our society actively right now. And many times we can feel pressured to get on board or get out of the way, right? That is the sea that we're swimming in. And it's got choppy waters, doesn't it? And there's currents coming from every direction, and it can get uh, kind of turbulent out there. I understand that. We live in a unique period in human history where some days it seems like everything is up for grabs. Acorns have fallen and are falling. Real things have happened and are happening in our world that are difficult and troubling and significant, and they require our thoughtful response and our careful engagement and our loving action. I, I get that. I get that. I'm not here this morning to say that we shouldn't be deeply engaged in all that's taking place in our world. I'm not here to say we shouldn't be advocating or advancing uh, policies and systems or practices and perspectives that would be more loving or more healthy or uh, more just and fair and sustainable or economically viable in our world. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying this. We must be careful of confusing falling acorns with a falling sky. Right? We must be careful not to confuse falling acorns with a falling sky because our world is in the midst of all sorts of transitions. So much is changing that as a result, many of us are tempted to say and tempted to believe that things are spinning out of control. And I believe that God, through his written word this morning, wants to challenge that thinking. I believe that God wants to say to you, and I believe that God wants to say to me, that though it might sometimes feel like everything's falling apart, 
right? Though it might feel like the wheels are just about to come off the bus, though it might seem like our world is out of control, that couldn't be farther from the truth. The sky is not falling. So over the next eight weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Daniel. It's a new series for us titled Life Without Control. And this sermon series from Daniel, it's rooted in a book, this Old Testament book that tells the compelling life story of a bright and talented Israelite named Daniel who lived during a very troubling time for his nation and for its people. As we engage the words that Daniel wrote over the next two months, we'll discover that Daniel lived his entire life in captivity as a loyal servant to a foreign king. Daniel knew what it was like to feel out of control. He knew what it was like to live in a world where legislated policies and common cultural practices stood against his own personal convictions and against the religion that he held so dear. Right? Daniel's story and Daniel's reflection on his story are rich indeed, and I am excited to begin this series with you this morning. But if we're fully going to understand Daniel's story, and if we're really going to grasp all that this book has to say to us over the next couple months, then we've got to understand the context, the historical setting with which this story occurred. We've got to do a little work together to better understand what was happening in Daniel's day and age. Wouldn't you know it, but the Bible gives some historical context to what's happening at Daniel's time. Don't ever forget this, church, that among the many things the Bible is, it is also a reliable historical record of ancient people that time and time again has been proven trustworthy and true. So before we dive into Daniel this morning, which again I am excited to do, before we get there, would you join me in Isaiah 39? We'll be reading verses 5 through 7 together, and as you're turning there, would you let me paint a picture of what's happening in the ancient Middle East during this period that we're studying? Would you travel back in time with me? The year is 705 BCE, that's almost 2,700 years ago, and Hezekiah is king in Judah. Now, the nation of Israel at this point, it's divided into two parts. Maybe you've heard of this political division before. The ancient Israel that we think about a lot, right? This united kingdom under King David. It underwent a division. And so there was some tribes to the north, the northern tribes, Israel, and then another contingent to the south, Judah, right? So Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And in 705 BCE, Hezekiah is king in the south. He's king in Judah, And during Hezekiah's reign, another empire, the Assyrian Empire, is growing in power to the northeast. Now, the Assyrian Empire, they're expanding, they're gaining prominence, they're conquering neighboring territories. And here's what you got to know about the Assyrians. These are bad people. These are mean folks. I mean, if you want something that'll just make your stomach turn, read some ancient historical accounts about the warfare practices of these folks. It is absolutely disgusting, right? We're not going to go there today, but this is scary, terrible, public graphic violence that they're perpetuating against their neighbors. And Hezekiah knows they might be coming his way next. So understandably so, he gets worried about the security of his kingdom. He knows the Assyrians could come his way. And then as he's worried, he gets really, really sick. We're talking seriously sick. So things aren't looking good for Hezekiah and things aren't looking good for Judah. And so as a response, Hezekiah, he starts to weep and pray and cry out to God. He asks God for help and God shows up big time. 
God heals Hezekiah from his sickness, and then God tells him, and this is in Isaiah 38, he says, I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. I will defend this city. Now imagine your king Hezekiah, and this brutal enemy is gaining power to the northeast, and you think they might be coming your way next, and then you get deathly ill, and then God heals you, and he gives you this promise. I will defend this city, right? That is good news indeed, isn't it? But here's what happens. Hezekiah gets this amazing promise from God, but then some envoys from Babylon show up, right? Now, Babylon, it's to the south of Assyria, and these messengers from Babylon, they bring gifts and letters to Hezekiah because they'd heard he'd be sick, right? That's the polite thing to do. So they show up with these things for Hezekiah, in Babylon and Assyria, you've got to know this, these are like the two feuding superpowers, so they don't get along very well. So these messengers from Babylon come, and Hezekiah, even though he's got this promise from God, he's still nervous about the Assyrian army coming. So these messengers show up, and Hezekiah gets a little feisty. And he decides he's going to craft his own plan. And so these messengers are here, and while they're arriving and they bring in those gifts, he said, hey, would you like to go on a tour? And like all people, they say, of course, yes, I love a good tour. And so Hezekiah takes them to his treasure house. Now, church, I've never been to a king's treasure house yet. I'm still holding out one day, right? Never been to a king's treasure house. But this place is full of riches. The biblical text says that it has gold and silver and spices and precious oils. I mean, it sounds like a store on the plaza, doesn't it? I mean, this is a gorgeous place filled with abundant riches. And Hezekiah takes these envoys there and he said, oh, did you see the latest from Versace here, right? Oh, did you smell this cologne from Paris here? So he's showing them his riches. And then the text says he takes them to his armory, right? So I'm showing you all my nice money, my nice things. Now I want to show you all these weapons we have. And then it says that he took them to his storehouses of food. So he's giving them a tour. And this tour, it's designed to show these messengers from Babylon that, hey, we've got some cash here in Judah. We have some nice things, and what Hezekiah is trying to do is make sure that these Babylonian envoys go back to their own king, and they say, hey, this kingdom, they've got some money, they've got some things we can use, why don't we decide to protect them for a fee, right? Hezekiah is trying to work a deal. He shows them all the wealth of Judah with the desire that they would become Judah's paid protectors right? God had told Hezekiah point blank, I will defend this city. But these envoys from Babylon arrive, and Hezekiah decides, no, 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 I'm going to work my plan. And this is what brings us to Isaiah 39, 5 through 7, because God sees what Hezekiah has done. He's deeply displeased, and so he sends Isaiah, his prophet, his spokesperson, to Hezekiah. And then verse 5, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah shows up with a message from God to Hezekiah and the message of this, because you took things into your own hands, because you tried to use your wealth to buy your security, because you did not trust my promise, God's promise to defend you, you need to know that one day all this wealth that you just showed Babylon, 
It's going to go to them, right? All this wealth that you thought you were working at playing, they're going to take it. They're not going to be your friends. They're not going to be your protectors. They're going to turn into your oppressors. And they won't just take your money. They're going to take your children as well, and they're going to enslave them as servants in your kingdom. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, because you tried to take control, Hezekiah. Because in a moment of panic, you acted without placing things in proper perspective. Because you dismissed my promise of protection and embraced a scheme you devised yourself. Because of that, Judah will fall to Babylon. This is the background of Daniel's story. So now, turn to Daniel 1. It's page 737 in our community Bibles. And as you're turning, let me tell you this, a hundred years has passed between this bold word that Hezekiah gave, or that uh, Isaiah gave to Hezekiah and Daniel 1, right? A century has come and gone in between these two places where we've been reading. And now we find ourselves in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. And Daniel 1, 1 says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Just as God said what happened, Judah fell to Babylon, right? And just as God said what happened, Nebuchadnezzar came and took Judah's gold, right? And just as God said what happened, Nebuchadnezzar took Hezekiah's descendants and enslaved them. I mean, we see this in verse 3. Then the king, right? This is King Nebuchadnezzar. He commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family, right? So Hezekiah's descendants, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Nebuchadnezzar says, yeah, bring me Judah's riches, but don't just stop there. I want their royal line too. I want their best people to serve as my sermons. And man, I love the description of these youths from Judah, don't you? I mean, use without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom. That could be a life verse for some of you. Um, but, but it shows me that Nebuchadnezzar, he wants the cream of the crop. And actually what's amazing to me is that archaeologists have actually uncovered some ancient images of those noble use of Judah. I think we have it on the screen. So this is the best and the best that Judah has. To, oh, we can take that off. I know we did a lot of history, right? So we need to laugh. These are the best of the best of the people of Judah, right? Strong and striking in appearance, cunning intellect. And Nebuchadnezzar says, bring these youths to me to undergo three years of education. Now this education, don't think of this as three years away at Babylonian U, okay? This isn't like education at college. This is re-education. This is closer to brainwashing, all right? This is instruction that's designed to erase the past for these people that he is enslaving and to sort of indoctrinate them into life in Babylon. And how do we know this? How do we know that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to erase their history and their identity and mold them into pliable subjects? Well, I think it's clearest in verses 6 and 7. Let's look there now. It says, among these, so among these handsome and intelligent youths brought to Babylon were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azirah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azirah, he called Abednego. Now this renaming, this is significant. Because throughout human history, oppressors have used the power of naming to assert dominance 
over their captives, right? We can see this in American history when we look at the slave trade. I mean, it happened all the time. Did you know that in kind of the North American slave trade, slaves would come and they would arrive on ships and they'd be taken to the auction block where they were given first names only usually, right? Just simply so they could be identified for purchase. So let's just put a first name on it, right? And once purchased, their new master had the power to give them a new legal name if he or she wanted to do that. And the slave, that name would be what they're assigned. That's what they're called now, right? A brand new name, either from the auction block or from your master, and that's it. And actually, the first place that those names would often be recording in writing was on the receipt that a master would receive at auction. And can you imagine what that was like? And many slaves, they had only this first name unless they worked on a plantation large enough to have multiple slaves with the same first name. Now, if that happened, they could be given a last name, and usually it was the last name of the person from whom they were purchased, right? So if I purchased a, a slave from, I don't know, John Lewis, I might give the slave that I bought from John the last name Lewis, or slaves were given last names that matched the work that they did. So if you bought a slave to pick cotton, for example, you could name that slave, you know, Simon Cotton, right? So slaves, their oppressors, they were, they were taken, they were given brand new names that reflected their status, the fact that they were totally owned by the people that purchased them. And in the same way that American slave traders, right, used the power of naming to assert their dominance over the people they purchased, in Babylon, Ashpenaz, under the direction of Nebuchadnezzar, renamed Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azirah, giving them new names that served as evidence of their captivity and reflected their status as servants. And even more, the names that Ashpenaz gave these young men, it mocked their history and their customs. Because you see, Daniel, whose name in Hebrew meant God is my judge, was renamed Belteshazzar which in Babylonian means Prince of Bel, right? Bel is the god that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped. And so Ashpenaz, as he's renaming Daniel, he says, oh, God is my judge? <laughs> no, no, no. Your god is nothing. You're, you're Prince of Bel now, right? And similarly, Ashpenaz, he took Hananiah, whose name meant beloved of the Lord, and he gave him the name Shadrach, which means illumined by the sun god. And he took Mishael, whose name comes from Psalm 113, Right, a psalm written by King David, which asks, who is like our God? Right, I mean, a gorgeous psalm. And he changed his name to Meshach, which means, uh, who is like Venus instead? Right? See, these are all intentional shifts. And then he takes Azira, whose name means, the Lord is my help. And he gives him the name Abednego, which means the servant of Nego. Right? And so Ashpenaz, under the direction of Nebuchadnezzar, seeks to erase the identity of Daniel and his friends, giving them new names, slave names, that mocked their religious beliefs and reminded them of their lot in life as captives. And so at this point, I'm sure you're wondering, gosh, this is a pretty dark story, Tyler. If I wanted to be depressed, I would have just turned on the news, man. And it certainly seems like a whole lot of acorns were falling in Judah. And I'm sure that in the midst of it, there were those that were ready to cry out, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and I don't think I'd fault them. Because their kingdom has been ransacked in what was certainly a bloody siege. I mean, remember the cruelty of the Assyrians. And their best and brightest have been taken to serve as slaves in a foreign country. Right? It is a bleak picture, really. It seems quite hopeless. And, and I wonder in the moment what Daniel was thinking. And as all this was unfolding, I wonder what was going through Daniel's mind as he was taken away 
from Judah and sent to Babylon, it seems likely to me that his outlook would not have been optimistic. It seems likely to me that his thoughts were not hopeful. It seems likely to me that he believed, even as a young man, that maybe his best days were behind him, right? I mean, this is a devastating reality to be sold off to a foreign power. I'm sure at some moments Daniel felt like God had abandoned him. And as he surveyed his situation and reflected on all that had happened to him, I'm sure he was tempted to despair. Who can imagine what Daniel felt like as he was being taken away from his home? right in that moment. But here's the thing, the beautiful thing, the beauty of the book of Daniel is that it wasn't written when Daniel was in his teens. And it wasn't written when Daniel was in his 20s. Right? Daniel wrote this book that we're reading this morning after a lifetime had passed, right? Think of it like a memoir. He's towards the end of his life and he's looking back over his life and reflecting and he's looking at it through the lens when Daniel becomes an old man of years of seeing God be faithful and years of seeing God have control, right? Daniel writes this book at the end of his life and I believe that the added perspective that Daniel gained over time seeing God's faithfulness throughout his life allowed him at the end of his life to write what we find in verse 2. This is the punchline this morning. Look at verse 2. Daniel writes, I mean, this is amazing, writing about this devastating moment in uh, Judah's history. Daniel writes, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. You see, after a lifetime of faithfulness, Right, from Daniel. After a lifetime of seeing God's power and God's absolute control, Daniel is able to look at what was one of the most devastating moments in Judah's history and to look at what was one of the most devastating moments in his own life, right, when he's taken into captivity. And at the end of his life, he's able to say, God gave Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, right? That even in that dark, dark moment, Daniel's able to say that through it all, God was in control, and that's where we're landing this morning, church. The entire exploration of Judah's history, right? And that walk through the history of Judah's fall, it's all designed to make this one point, that God is in control when we feel it and when we don't, when we see it and when we can't, when it looks like it and when it doesn't, God is in control. And church, that is an unalterable reality. It ought to shape the way we interact with and process with our world. And man, I know transparently there are many of you that have been in very dark situations recently. I just want to remind you that God is in control. And instead of believing that everything is spinning out of control, and instead of panicking and acting recklessly, right, instead of feeling overwhelmed and wanting to throw in the towel, instead of taking to social media and crying out, can you believe it? Right? Instead of embracing the words of those who kind of cynically say that it's bad and it always will be bad and it never will get any better, right? instead of feeling falling acorns and saying the sky is falling, we can, as followers of Christ, respond differently. Instead of embracing panic, worry, and despair, we can embrace the good news that God is in absolute control and that nothing has ever happened and nothing will ever happen that can thwart his good plan for the world. 
You see, God is after the redemption and reconciliation of all things, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that that plan cannot be stopped, and that one day everything will be made right, whether we can see it now or whether we can't. God retains ultimate control over his universe, and his good plan will not be defeated ever. He is in control, and this means, church, that we don't need to be people of panic. And we don't need to be people of worry, and we don't need to be people who are cynical, right? People, people that just kind of throw in the towel, but we can be people instead who celebrate the fact that no human action, no human decision can derail God's good plan for his world. And, and that's where this gets practical, church, because we live in a society that has become increasingly alarmist and increasingly cynical. Right? Increasingly alarmist and increasingly cynical. And some of our sharpest thinkers and some of our biggest stars, right, they model these two dispositions toward the world, right? They say, they model that those folks that are really smart, they're really with it, they just panic. They get alarmist because they know how bad it's going to be, right? That's a, an action, a reaction that we see everywhere. There's alarmist in the world. And then there's other folks that are increasingly cynical, right? It always has been bad. It always will be bad. Why do you even care? We certainly see that model, don't we? We live in a culture increasingly alarmist and increasingly cynical. And this is where the reality of Jesus' resurrection and the message of God's word to us from Daniel makes all the difference. Because remember how we said that Daniel gained maturity over the course of his life that allowed him at the end of his life to see God was in control over all of it? Right? Remember how we said that that lifetime of faithfulness gave Daniel faith maturity that allowed him to reinterpret and re-understand even the darkest moments in Judah's history? Well, I want to suggest this morning that true maturity, right, maturity of faith, Christian maturity, uh, isn't alarmism, and maturity isn't cynicism. Though that's what we see modeled in our world. I want to suggest this morning that maturity is celebrating the reality that God is in control, that mature people are those people that celebrate the fact that God is in control. So when acorns fall and when things look bleak and when many cry out that the world is spinning out of control, those who are mature in faith are able to say, it may look dark, and I might not know how it's going to turn out, but I know this, that God's plan in the world cannot be thwarted, right? That God's will will be accomplished, that one day everything that is disintegrating, right, everything that is not as it should be, it's all going to be put back together, that that can't be stopped. The resurrection proves it, it's underway now, and one day it will be accomplished. That's a mature faith response. In church, in our world of chicken littles and henny pennies, wouldn't that kind of attitude be refreshing? Wouldn't you love to live in this time of great transition without having to be an alarmist and without having to be a cynic, but instead being a person of mature faith who celebrates God's total control over all things? I know that's who I would like to be, but, but how does that happen? Right? How realistically can we become those kind of people? Well, this morning as our time together draws to a close, uh, I want to suggest this. If you've been around Christ community for any length of time, you know that we believe the spiritual disciplines 
are an incredible way that people are formed in their faith, right? I'm sure you've heard us say this, that practicing and engaging different spiritual disciplines is how deep change occurs in the soul. So this morning, just to wrap up our time, I want to lay out one discipline that has two components, one discipline and two components that I believe can help form us into the kind of people that respond with maturity when the acorns fall, right? This discipline is celebration. It's celebration. When others are ready to panic, when others are ready to scoff, when others are ready to give up, those who know Christ can celebrate the goodness of his absolute control. It's Dallas Willard who says this, celebration hardly done makes our deprivations and sorrows seem small. He's suggesting that celebrating the good truth of God's control can make all the very real hurts, right? I mean, the acorns are falling, not denying that, but celebration can make those hurts and those sorrows seem small. They can put them in proper perspective, right? It's a discipline celebration that forms us into people of mature faith. And I said it had two components. Here they are. The first is refraining and the second is reframing, right? refraining and reframing. So how does this work? Well, when an acorn falls, when we learn a piece of bad news, when something happens in our world that gets our blood pressure to rise, right, and our hearts beating fast, when we're feeling the temptation to panic, the first thing we need to do is refrain, right? We make a conscious decision. You know what? I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to throw up the alarm. I'm not going to buy into all the rhetoric that I hear around me. I'm going to pump the brakes. I'm choosing to refrain from panic in the moment. And church, I get that that is so hard. So that's why we can pray in those moments, right? We can ask God's Spirit for help. Man, Lord, I'm feeling tense. Lord, I'm feeling nervous right now. Would you, through your Spirit, help me to see that the sky is not falling? Will you keep me from panic? Will you help me not to lose heart, right? We can pray pray that in those moments. So first step is to refrain. The second step is to reframe, right? We reframe the news that we just heard. So that means whatever dire circumstance that we just heard about, whatever troubling piece of news we just received, whatever thing that entered into our lives that was causing us to panic, we stop, we refrain, and then we reframe it not as something that indicates the sky's about to fall, but as just a new opportunity for God to show off his incredible redeeming power. We reframe the bad news of life as, hey, just a new opportunity for God to show off his incredible redeeming power. This may look dark, but it only means that God's redemption, which is guaranteed, is going to be even more bright when it ultimately comes through, right? It's dark now. I have no idea how this can work out, but I'm going to choose to reframe it and say, man, when God does put all this back together, it's going to be absolutely incredible, We refrain from panic and we reframe what seems difficult or devastating as just an opportunity for God to show off his incredible redeeming power. And this kind of response to adversity, this response to falling acorns, I think it's modeled for us so well by our sisters and brothers around the globe who sometimes experience great difficulty and opposition when they try to live as people of faith in cultures that are hostile to their faith. And I say that to say this, we're not the first ones to feel or to be in situations that are devastating, and we have models around the world, brothers and sisters in the faith, that have shown us that, man, a little piece of bad news here and some devastating action there and some dire circumstances here do not spell the end of the world. 
And what's amazing is that people that gather like we are now in places around the world that are more hostile to their faith, they see incredible growth and they see God move all the time and they're not anxious about it or they're not worried. And they maintain this refrain and reframe perspective that, man, this looks difficult and, man, this looks hard, but we're just going to trust that God's going to show up and work. And over time, again and again, God proves himself faithful. He proves himself faithful. So church, this week, God's message to us from Scripture is simple. God is saying, I'm in control. God is saying, I'm in control. And he's inviting us to be people that choose not to embrace despair and not to embrace cynicism and to leave alarmism and pessimism behind and instead to embrace celebration of the fact that he's in control. This week, when you're exposed to news and circumstances and realities that aren't what you expected, I want to invite you to reframe from being chicken little and reframe that dark news as an opportunity for God to work in ways that will blow our minds, right? That's the invitation this week. Remember, God is in control when we can see it and when we can't. Will you pray with me? Man, Lord, it is a, it is a simple message but I know that it is a, can be a hard message to hear because the acorns fall all the time. God, I'm tempted, and I'm sure we're all tempted in many ways uh, to panic, to, to feel like it's spinning out of control, Lord, to, to just give up and say that it, it, things aren't going to work out. And God, would you be our strength this week when circumstances arrive that might tempt us or cause us to, to give up or to despair, would you be our strength in allowing us to say no to those thoughts and instead to embrace the truth made so clear through your word this morning that you are in control even when it looks like you're not and that we can trust you. God, grow us into those kind of mature Christians that are able to celebrate your control even in difficult moments. We need your help in this area. We're asking you, please, Lord, in your powerful name we pray. Amen.